Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word like a newborn baby, that you may grow by it. For God has granted to us everything pertaining to life and the spiritual life through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue that through these he gave us great and magnificent promises, that through these we might become partakers of God's nature and uh, partakers of God's nature having already escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Before we begin our study this morning, let's bow our heads together. Our Father, we are so thankful that we have you and we can know about you and that you have given us everything we need. Our total bent and orientation is towards self-sufficiency, but yet we need you every moment of every hour. Father, we need to be reminded that we are nothing without you and with you we are everything. Father, we thank you for the opportunities we've had to go through these first three chapters of Ephesians and to learn of so many of the things that you have accomplished for us, that you have provided for us, and the way in which we partake of the wealth that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Help us to understand these things and focus on the great praise at the end of chapter 3 this morning that we may learn more about you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, and we are looking at the last couple of verses in the chapter. We've spent quite a bit of time in chapter 3 because there is so much that is here. When I read through the scriptures and I go from phrase to phrase and clause to clause and sentence to sentence, more and more I realize that so much that is said in the New Testament just carries a lot of baggage. It is loaded with allusions to things that assume that the reader knows something about the Old Testament and something about the Gospels. And yet we live in a world today when there are so many that don't know a whole lot about any of these things because Sadly, in many churches, they are, they're not like us. They are not encouraged to read through the scriptures so that they can become biblically literate. They are not encouraged to memorize scripture. They're not encouraged to spend uh, hours each week focusing on the Lord in prayer, in thanksgiving, in work, private, independent worship, and spending time just learning the word. Yesterday we had a memorial service here in the afternoon, and I was again reminded, we often hear people say, well, why do you do this or why do you do that? You can't take it with you when you go. The only thing that we can take with us when we die is what we know of God's Word. The spiritual maturity that we develop in this life goes with us into heaven. That's it. And so often we spend so much time on those things that just have a temporal value. Not that there's anything wrong with that. 
it is a matter of priorities. That when all is said and done, we don't want to look back on our lives and say, I wasted a lot of time that I should, could have, should have used in order to understand more about God and more about his word. And in this closing two verses in this uh, great section that we have studied, Paul is just, as he has gone through this last section, it just has elevated his soul and he just gives a great praise to God. But let's remind ourselves what has happened in the previous few verses. I'm going to entitle the message today to him who is able because this is how Ephesians 3.20 begins and because we had communion, we're not going to begin the summary of chapters 1 through 3 today so you don't have to worry about that. I know some people have plans for lunch today. I don't know why. but So I'm not going to keep us until 1. All right, in this prayer at the, that began back in verse, verse uh, 14, Paul is focusing on the fact that each of us needs to grow spiritually. And it's a stair-step prayer. A lot of times people read it, you read it in the English, you think he's praying for this and this and this, indicated by the that's and the that's and the that's. But there's a stair-step to it. There's an orderly progression. You have to first pray for one thing, that leads to the next level, that leads to the next level, and the, then the ultimate re, re, uh, result. So I have used this illustration of a staircase to maturity. Paul prays to the Father. He says, I bow my knee to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then we, in verse um, 16, he gets into the uh, heart of the prayer. The, the purpose of the prayer, the main thing that he is praying for, and that the God the Father would use the Spirit to strengthen us with might in our inner man. Now, that's an important thing because he uses this word strengthen. He uses the word might related to power, and that's a focal point when we come to this benediction in verse 19, to him who is able, that indicates God's power, God's ability. To do, again, has to do with God's power and God's ability. And then he says, according to the power that works in us. So there's four different words there that all relate to God's ability and God's strength and God's power. And his prayer at the end is that God would strengthen us through the Holy Spirit with might uh, in the inner man. And so that's his prayer. But why do we need that? Well, because it produces something. It will produce a result. The result is that Christ will make it his home in us. And Christ indwells every believer, every single one of us. The instant we're saved, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit indwell us. And when we are indwelt by the Trinity... That is a positional reality. That's our legal position before God. But it doesn't, it is in and of itself, it is not fellowship. It is the foundation that we can have that fellowship with God. And the word fellowship is often misunderstood and misapplied in so many different churches. You'll hear announcements like following the service, we're going to have a fellowship back in the fellowship hall. That's not quite right. The Greek word indicates a close rapport 
between people who are moving toward a common objective, a common goal. And throughout the Bible, we're constantly challenged to do what? To walk with the Lord. Uh, We have phrases like abide in Christ, walk in the light, walk in the truth, walk by the Holy Spirit. All of this is that language that represents spiritual growth and that intimacy with God. And that's what Paul's praying for here. The Christ making it his home in us is taking that positional indwelling to a level of experience where because we are being strengthened spiritually, we're growing spiritually, Christ becomes more and more at home in our lives. But that's not the end game. The end game is step four there. The purpose for that is so that we can begin to comprehend the immensity of Christ's love for us. Because his love is infinite, we're never going to get there. Not in this life, not in eternity, because we are always going to be finite. Our knowledge is always going to be finite. We will never be able to reach that as an end goal. But we're constantly going to be learning more and more about that. And the ultimate result for that is step five, so that we may be spiritually mature and reflect the love of Christ, the love that Christ has for, had for, has for us to those around us so that we can be, the term that we use is Christ-like. God is concerned about building in us a reflection of the character of Christ. That's described as the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, uh, 22 to 24. That the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. All of that is part of the fruit of the Spirit that reflects the character of Christ. So this represents that uh, movement from spiritual immaturity and infancy to spiritual maturity. And as Paul finishes that, he just expresses this incredible statement of praise to God. He says, now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So this verse begins with a little word, just a transition word now, which brings him to the close of this section that began back in chapter 1, verse 1. And he is focusing our attention upon God the Father. That's what he means when he says, now to him. Now the purpose of this is what's expressed in verse 21, to him be glory in the church. So this lets us know that what this is all about is giving praise to God. Now, there's an English word that describes this. That English word is a doxology. Doxology is formed from two Greek words, doxa, which means glory. And we know the noun logos in the beginning was the word. That's the Greek word logos. So logos relates to word, speech, communication, message. And so 
when you combine doxa with logos, you get a message or a word or a statement about God's glory. Now, there are two different ways in the New Testament in which doxologies are expressed. One is like what we have here. The other is like what we have back in chapter 1, verse 3, which reads, Blessed be the God and Father of Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So when we look at that, as I pointed out when we first started the book, that often the term blessed, you see this in the Psalms, is just a synonym for praise, a time to praise God. So this opens with this praise of God, praise of what he has done, praise of his essence, praise of his glory, and it concludes with a doxology. So if you are looking at the structure here, uh, what might this tell us about the first three chapters. It begins with a statement of praise. It ends with a statement of praise. That tells us that these three chapters are a a unit, that they go together. As a matter of fact, the word doxa is used uh, about eight times in the first uh, three chapters. This is the last time it's used. It's not mentioned in four, five, or six. Chapters 1 through 3 are all about God, all about what he has done for us, what he has provided for us, and all of this comes out of who God is. We talk about that as his essence. We talk about the attributes of God. So all of that relates to who God is, and in the, um, in the ju- background of the development of Jewish thought after the close of the Old Testament, they would simply refer to all of God's essence, everything that makes God God, as his glory. So when you see verses that say, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, what that's saying is all have sinned and fall short of everything that God is, all of his attributes. We just don't measure up at all. So this is a very important statement here that it is a statement related to why we praise God that this is to express the value of who he is or, in short form, his, uh, his glory. So it begins with this statement, Now to him who is able. That's five words in the English. That's just expressed by two words in the Greek. And it is the verb dunamai, which is the verb form of dunamis, from which we get the word dynamite. You always find somebody who's not real literate in Greek, and they'll talk about God's given us the power of dynamite. Not exactly. Um, but it has to do with ability. It has to do with what somebody is capable of. And so with when this references God, and talking about God's power, which we'll look at Uh, in a minute, what it does is it focuses us on God's omnipotence, that God is all-powerful. And so I want to take just a few slides to talk about what the Bible teaches about the power of God. We have to go back to the Old Testament to begin to understand the power of God. 
But the first thing we're going to do is understand the terminology. The power of God is unlimited. God is infinite in all of his attributes. So he's infinite in his power. So he is called omnipotent. He's infinite in his knowledge. So he is omniscient. And God is everywhere. He is present to every molecule of his creation. So he is omnipresent. And when we talk about God's omnipotence, some people try to facetiously say, well, can God make a circle, a square, uh, different things like that. But that misses the whole point. The point is God is able to do whatever he needs to do to accomplish his purposes. He has unlimited capabilities, unlimited ability, and unlimited power. So when we talk about the essence of God, we focus on these ten different attributes as a summary. He is sovereign. That means he rules over his creation because God created everything. Scripture says again and again, God created the heavens. Think about what that means. God created the the space-time continuum. He created space, and he filled the space with all of the stars, all of the galaxies, solar systems, asteroids, everything. He created. God created the heavens and the earth. Now, in, uh, in Hebrew, we know that that is a figure of speech indicating the totality. There's nothing you can think of that isn't within the heavens and the earth. God created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. In Exodus chapter 20, he created the heavens, the earth, and the seas and all that is in them. So this is God, refers to God's omnipotent power to create all things. He, he created the DNA chain. We've just discovered a lot of things and think we know it, but I bet in another 20, 30, 40 years, we'll break that down into numerous subcomponents. God, throughout all of eternity, has always known everything there is to know about the DNA chain because he created it. It first existed in his mind throughout all of eternity. Now, think about that. Don't think too much. You might go crazy. God designed all of that. So we see that if God designed it all and he thought it all and then he made it, that there is an intimate connection between his omniscience and his omnipotence. God's power is God is powerful enough to do everything because God knows everything in detail. He is able to uh, bring it all about. So we talk about the fact that God is sovereign. He is the ruler over his creation. Then we have uh, the next three attributes. He is righteous. That's the standard of his character. He is absolutely perfection. Absolute perfection doesn't do anything wrong. He is the standard of perfection. He is just. That's the application of those standards to his creation. Some people say, well, there's not a lot of justice going on right now. Well, God understands that because he created man and man rebelled against God and that brought sin into creation and there's nothing we can do to get rid of that sin other than what God says to do and that's to start at the cross. 
and trust Christ as Savior and then grow to spiritual maturity. And eventually God is going to return. Christ will return to the earth and he will establish his kingdom. And then we'll have the last dispensation and he'll reign for a thousand years. And then comes the end. But not until then. And even under the perfect rule of a perfectly righteous king who is perfectly just, sinful men will be born during that time, and they'll end up rebelling against God, and they will be as numberless as the sand on the seashore. And Satan will be released, and he'll lead them in a rebellion against God, and then God will incinerate them. And so that is all part of God's plan because he's teaching something about how destructive sin is that even if everything else is perfect, when the human heart is corrupt by sin, nothing will be perfect and there will always be problems. God is love and his love was demonstrated at the cross by sending his son to pay for the penalty of sin so that we could eventually have that problem solved. He's eternal life. He has no beginning and no end. He is eternal. He is infinite as well in his attributes of omniscience, omnipresence, and omnipotence. Veracity means he is absolutely true. That means if the word of God comes from God, it is absolute truth. We can, we can always count on it. And he is immutable. He never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Second point is that one of the titles for God that we find in the Old Testament to express his omnipotence is that he is almighty. This is translated in the, uh, comes from the title given to God in the Old Testament in the Hebrew, El Shaddai. El is God. Shaddai is almighty or all-powerful. He is almighty God. In Exodus 6.3, God re- is talking to Moses and he reminds Moses that he is the one who appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai, as God Almighty. Because he is Almighty, we know that he can accomplish what he purposes. He can accomplish what he promises. He doesn't promise us anything he cannot and will not do, and so we can always trust him. Third thing is that God is able to do everything. He created everything so that his power is so immense that we can't possibly comprehend it. It is greater than anything we can imagine. Beyond beyond our wildest dreams, no science fiction writer can even come close to understanding, comprehending the power of God. Job in Job 42 says, to God, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. Nothing can block God achieving his purposes in our lives, in our world, and in history. The fourth thing, and I've indicated this already, is that God's omnipotence and his omniscience are interconnected. What he can do is determined by his knowledge, and he knows everything. Let's just take some simple example. God created everything. So we know that the most minute elements, particles, whatever term, not elements in a chemistry sort of way, but the most basic part of anything, 
We'll boil it down, and we call it a molecule. Now we know there are submolecular particles. But let's just think about a molecule. Who first thought of a molecule? God always thought of molecules. He always knew what molecules were and how they would work. He knew all the complexities of molecules, things that we haven't even dreamed about yet. And he knew that by creating certain basic molecules that they could combine in uh, extraordinarily, in extraordinary ways and in a multiplicity of different ways. And so God is a creator, and to just sort of make this a little anthropomorphic, God is sitting back, got his hand, head on his hand, thinking about what am I going to do? And he says, well, one of the things I want to do is I want to talk about the importance of spiritual life and I need something that will symbolize that. Now, you realize God knew all of this forever, okay? His knowledge is intuitive. He doesn't learn anything. But he's thinking about this. He says, well, if I take a couple of hydrogen molecules and combine them with an oxygen molecule, we're going to come up with an incredible compound called water. And you, it, it's one of the uh, greatest solvents in, in the whole creation, you can dissolve anything. We wash anything with it. You can use it for all kinds of things. It's a basic component of life. You drink it, and uh, it gives you life. You don't drink it, you don't have life. It's a picture of cleansing. It's a picture of cleansing of sin. It's a picture of life, the life that comes that we get from the Savior. So all of these things he builds into his creation, and he has the power to do that. And we are only beginning to comprehend those, those minute structures within molecular development and, and the subatomic particles, all of those things, every one of which was designed to f- function uh, perfectly by God. And it's not an accident. It's, it's all controlled by him, too. He sustains the universe, so that it will be here to accomplish all of his purposes. Now, I wanted to point out a couple of things uh, from, from the Old Testament. And if you want to, you can turn there. I'm going to read a couple of these passages for you. In Exodus 15:2, something has just happened. You just had the event of the uh, Israelites leaving Egypt and their escape through the Red Sea as God miraculously parted the Red Sea. There we have water again. He knows all the components. He could part it. The ground is perfectly dry, and so you have two and a half, three million, uh, yeah, three billion Israelites leaving. And God did all of that. Afterward, Moses writes a song to praise God. And in verse 2, he says in Exodus 15, The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. Then he begins to talk about these things that God has done, and they relate to his power. The Lord is a man of war. He just wiped out the greatest army on the face of the earth at that time, and that was the army of Pharaoh. It was the greatest empire that existed on the earth at that time. The Lord is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. 
your right hand, O Lord. See, often in Scripture, the power of God is expressed through his arm or his hand or something like that. So he says, your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. Then in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 3, verses 24 through 27, I see there's a typo there, Deuteronomy chapter 3, verses 24, 324, and then 33, 26, that's and 27. O Lord God, you have begun to show your servant your greatness. With all these miracles that Moses saw, he says, you only began to show me what you can do. Uh, your, you have uh, to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand for what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do anything like your works and your mighty deeds. That's God's omnipotence. And in this verse we're studying in Ephesians, that is what's made available to us. And we've seen that all the way through Ephesians 1 through 3. In Deuteronomy 33, 26 and 27, he says, There is no one like the God of Yeshurun. That is a Hebrew nickname for Israel. There is no God like the God of Yeshurun who rides the heavens to help you and in his excellency on the clouds. The eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. He will thrust out the enemy from before you, and he will say, destroy. Now in Job, Job chapter 9, we get some other verses where Job is reflecting upon God, and he says, God is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and prospered? And so many people think they can take God on, but no one has ever prospered by doing that. He removes the mountains, and they do not know. When he overturns them in his anger, he shakes the earth out of its place, and its pillars tremble. He commands the sun, and it does not rise. He seals off the stars. He alone spreads out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He made the bear, that's Ursula Major, Orion, and the Pleiades, those are the constellations, and the chambers of the south. He does great things past finding out, yes, wonders without number. So this expresses for us this omnipotence of God, which is so necessary for our spiritual life. Romans 8.31 then says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? We have the power of God. No matter what we face in life, it doesn't surprise God. God knew about it from eternity past, and God has the power to get us through it and to sustain us and to enable us to learn and grow as a result of it. In Ephesians three twenty, he says, Now to him who is able has this omnipotent ability to do, and then there's this word, uh, huper ek perisu. It basically means beyond your wildest imagination, uh, beyond anything that we can ask or think, beyond anything that we've ever thought of, God is able to do that. And how does he do it? He does it according to the power that works within us. 
He uses a preposition here, kata, which indicates according to a standard, and that standard is this power that works in us. Now, we've already learned about this in the last three chapters. And Ephesians 1.19, Paul writes, And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power. But he goes on in verse 20 and he says, this power is that which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That's the power that's available to us, is the power of resurrection. Then in Ephesians 3, 7, he talking about the gospel. He says, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the affected effective working of his power. When we're saved, the fact that we are born again is the result of his power. The fact that we have eternal life is the result of his power. The fact that the Holy Spirit indwells us is the work of his power. And, and, and the fact uh, that, that we have a spiritual gift is the result of his power. And then he, Ephesians 3.16 says that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might. That's where this prayer started back in uh, verse 14. We are to be strengthened with the strength of his might. So that is the starting point. To him who is able, who is omnipotent, to him who has unlimited strength and power, and the knowledge to use it and use it correctly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to that power that works in us, that is in us. Back in uh, chapter chapter 3, verse 16, he said that we are to be strengthened through the Holy Spirit with might in the inner man. That's the same thing he uses. Verse 17 talks about in the heart. That is our, our inner man, and here it works in us. That's in the inner man. And then he concludes in verse 21, and he says, To him, to God the Father, be glory. Now, that's an interesting word. We've studied this many, many times. In the Hebrew, in Hebrew, they're very concrete in their understanding of abstract ideas. And so glory is really a word that means something that is heavy, something that is weighty, and therefore gets the meaning of something that is important. So here when it talks about to him be glory, what it's talking about is uh, expressing the importance, the significance, the centrality of who God is. That he is the one without whom none of us can do. He has everything. He is everything. And so uh, we are to praise his glory because he is the most significant, important person in our life or that we could ever have in our life. So we give him the glory. We stress how important he is to us, how central he is to us. To him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations. Now, when we look at this phrase in the church, that's talking about what we've just seen. In the last two chapters, as God has created this new entity, this body of Christ, that we are a 
a new man, a new person. We are a new construction, a new building, a new temple. All of this re- re- references the the uh, the corporate entity of the church. So he is going to be glorified in the church, in all of us who are in the body of Christ. And then it says, by Christ Jesus, which I think is the correct reading. That's the one that's in the King James and New King James, and it's in the majority of manuscripts. But there's some older manuscripts that have the word and in there where it would read in the church and in Christ Jesus, which would express a completely different uh, idea, but the majority of manuscripts plus a number of ancient translations such as the Latin Vulgate and the Syriac and some others all have the reading that is that is recognized in the in the King James to him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus. He is the one who is the head of the church and he is the one uh, whose body we are in the church. And this is going to be for all generations in the future, forever and ever. And as we read back in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7, talks about the fact that in the ages to come, that he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And so this is what this is talking about. We will be on display as trophies of grace. What God has done in the church, through the church, and for the church throughout all generations. The only way to really be a member of the church, the body of Christ, is to trust in Christ as Savior. And at that instant, a lot of things happen to each one of us. And one of them is is that we're identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And we enter into what is called the body of Christ, the church universal. And we are his forever. And we can never lose that salvation. Let's bow our heads and go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at these things this morning, to be reminded of who we are in Christ, who we are in the church, in this new body, in this new man. And Father, we pray that we would be challenged by this, recognizing that life is not composed of that which we see and that which we taste and touch and smell but that life is in you. And we are to see that life expand. Jesus didn't say, I came to give you a bunch of rules and get you depressed. He said, I came to give life and to give it abundantly. And he said, I give you my joy. And so we are to be among the happiest, joyful people, no matter what the circumstances And we are created anew and placed in him forever and ever. Father, we pray that if there's anyone listening to this message this morning, anyone listening on the Internet, that it would be clear that we all have to face this decision. Where will we spend eternity? What happens after we die physically? And that question is answered clearly in Scripture. It depends on what you think about Jesus Christ. If you trust in him as your Savior, trust in him alone, then you have everlasting life that can never be taken from you. But if you don't trust in him, then you do not. 
So, Father, we pray that anyone listening would make a clear decision to trust in Christ. And at that instant, God knows that you're trusting in him, and he gives you eternal life. Now, Father, we ask that you challenge us with these things. In Christ's name, amen.